And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show, which means that Danny Ratliff will be joining me this morning to talk a little bit about a few different things. But the most important one, of course, is Jamie Dimon and his recent comments of the Fed's going to have to hike rates 5 to 7%. And, um, of course, this has been getting a lot of email attention. I've been just getting swamped with emails like, oh, my gosh, what do you think about this? Uh, we'll talk about it this morning. Um, just short version is... Jamie Dimon says a lot of crap that's not even reasonable. So this isn't the first time he spews stuff out there for, I guess, for headlines. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, but we'll get into all that this morning. We'll talk about uh, what he said and what it means and why he said it, I guess, and what the consequences would, uh, of that would be. Anyway, we'll get into that. Um, also, Costco announced earnings last night, um, beating earnings estimates. Sales still soft uh, there, but again, beating estimates. And the reason I like to look at Costco, of course, and, and a lot of these kind of you know uh, grocery retailers, uh, Walmart, etc., is they really tell you a lot about what's going on with the consumer. And you know, right now the consumer is certainly showing some signs of weakness, right? But they're still out spending money, so. Um, you know, the economy is still kind of chugging along here. I do think we're going to see some negative revisions coming to GDP here soon. Um, I think we're going to start seeing some downdraft in some of the economic data over the next couple of months in particular. Um, and we're going to see a lot more of the impact potentially in November or December um, once we see the restart of the student loan payments on October the 1st. We'll see if that has any impact. But uh, again, you know, Costco's kind of announcement yesterday uh, earnings were good, but sales a little bit softer. And that's not really surprising um, in what we're seeing in, in the current environment. So again, something just worth paying attention to is, is and, and particularly like the Walmarts, uh, which basically uh, grocery sales make up about 60% of their business. It's a big chunk. Uh, that's because of Sam's Club. Um, but, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing the impact of consumers having to make some choices here. And again, this is going to affect some of the higher end retailers first, and that will kind of filter down into the Dollar Generals and the Walmarts and the Costcos, et cetera, uh, down the road. Anyway, worth paying attention to uh, again, as we are starting to see this consumer confidence of the both of the last readings. So there's two different readings of consumer confidence. Uh, one is the Michigan uh, University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index, and the other is the Census Bureau, or sorry, the Conference Board. Uh, index of consumer confidence, both of those showing signs of a downturn in sentiment. And, and this really isn't surprising. You know, we had this nice rally in the markets earlier this year. And as we talked about with the Federal Reserve, the reason the Fed normally cuts rates and does monetary accommodation is to lift asset prices because higher asset prices lift consumer confidence. Well, the Fed was trying to hike rates and slow the economy earlier this year, but stocks were rallying like a banshee uh, really ever since last October. And that was boosting consumer confidence. We saw upticks in consumer confidence, particularly this year, um, even though despite the fact that we had you know, higher interest rates and higher borrowing costs and, and, and the impact to the economy, of course, the, the whole regional banking crisis, et cetera, nobody really paid much attention to any of that. And consumer confidence was rising because, well, people were looking at their 401k plans and their investment accounts going, hey, I've got more money, so I'm going to go spend more. 
And, and that was certainly helping keep this economy going now with this recent downturn in the markets. And again, we'll talk about that in just a second, but this recent downturn in the market, of course, is, is now starting to pull away some of that optimism. And we're starting to see pessimism kind of return to the markets, but we also saw consumer confidence turn down in the recent surveys as well. Uh, again, you know, this isn't kind of the end of the world scenario, but it does suggest, again, when you kind of put everything together, looking at the, 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 the job availability, employment numbers, we're starting to see unemployment rates tick up. We're starting to see the early kind of traction for that economic slowdown. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a recession just yet, but we should start seeing slower rates of economic growth. Now, the important thing about that is, is that earnings estimates for companies are extremely elevated. So if we see slower economic growth, that is starting, going to start to bring down those earnings estimates, which, um, again, valuations are a function of price divided by earnings, right? So if earnings are coming down uh, and prices aren't coming down, then valuations continue to rise. But what that says is, is that in this environment, we're likely going to have to see prices adjust lower as we get into next year uh, to accommodate for valuations. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning because after this last eight trading sessions, which have been actually pretty brutal for the markets, again, not outside of the realm of normality by any stretch of the imagination. And again, back in June and July, we were talking about this need for a three to five to a 10% correction, still very much within the context of that kind of normal corrective action that happens in any given year. Uh, for the markets, particularly after you've had a market that has rallied basically 15% in the first half of the year, having a bit of a pullback, not surprising. If we go back to the last three years, uh, we've had seasonal weakness in September of 3 to 4%, and both in both cases, or all three previous cases, that led to a fairly strong end to the fourth quarter. And that was even during 2022, during the bear market. Of course, the market bottomed in October and we rallied into December. So again, that kind of seasonal pattern of summer weakness um, leads to basically a, a potential for a rally into the fourth quarter. So again, that's still what I would be expecting. And for a couple of reasons for that is, as we talked about the last couple of days, first of all, the MACD sell indicator is still intact here for certain. Um, but we're getting fairly oversold. In fact, we haven't been quite this oversold in the markets in quite a while. And most of these more oversold conditions, you will note, uh, correspond with you know, rallies in the markets. And again, you know, we go back in every one of the previous short-term bottoms. And again, we're just talking about short-term bottoms. That's all. Is that when markets get this oversold, you're generally going to get a reflexive rally. Now, uh, what kind of rally you're talking about? Well, right now, rally back to around 440, uh, 44.30 on the S&P would certainly be logical. That would come up, retest this 50-day moving average. We've got the 20-day moving average sitting right below it right now. Uh, there's certainly some resistance at 43.70 um, where you have the 100-day moving average. But again, a reflexive rally back to retest some of these previous uh, kind of uh, ranges for the market would not be surprising in the short term. And that'll certainly be a good opportunity to kind of rebalance the portfolio, kind of reevaluate risk. Um, think about what, uh, you know, kind of how you're positioned and what you're looking for uh, potentially heading into year end. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, this still remains a market that is driven by seven stocks for the most part. In fact, if you look at the market return this year so far, the market right now 
as of yesterday's close is up a little bit over 11% for the year. So still, even with this correction, it's been a very good year for the stock market. Well, it's been a very good year for seven stocks in the market because if you look at the equal weight index, it is actually now flat for the year. So if you've owned any other stocks outside of that, market performance hasn't been great this year. Portfolio performance hasn't been great. Um, and this is one of the other reasons that potentially sets this market up for a rally over the last couple of months of the year is portfolio managers need to play catch up with whatever moves next in the market. So we're going to see some positioning trying to play catch up with market returns this year uh, as we start to get ready to close out the year. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back from the break, we will pick up with Danny Ratliff. Again, we'll get into this whole issue of Jamie Dimon and his comments that the Fed may need to hike rates, you know, two more percents, right? We may need to go to 7% on the Fed funds rate. Is that even realistic? Uh, we'll talk about that and what that might mean for the economy, if it, even if it actually happened, which it, it won't. So we'll be right back after the break. More of The Real Investment Show coming up with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, good morning. Doing great. Good. So, um, you know, this has been the big story this week. Jamie Dimon uh, in the media talking about the Fed might need to hike rates to 7%. The world's not prepared for that right now because there's a huge difference between a 3% rate and a 5% rate and a 5 and a 7% rate, which is, yeah, duh. <laughs> You know, yeah, there's a big difference between three and seven. Um, but, you know, of course, this has sparked a lot of debate here as of late. like, oh, this means the Fed's going to have to hike rates more. No, Jamie Dimon, first of all, says a lot of stuff. I've written tons of articles about Jamie Dimon in the past, and he has a complete detachment. Of course he would, right? I mean, he's kind of sits in an ivory tower. He's, you know, gets paid, you know, millions upon millions of dollars every year to, to run uh, J.P. Morgan. And, and, you know, good for him. Right. But, you know, his views on what happens in the real economy is vastly different because of of where he sits. And he says a lot of stuff that's just basically stupid. And I've written <laughs> I've written tons of articles on this in the past. And, you know, every time he says these type of things, I don't know. Again, you know, maybe it's just for headline reasons or just general conversation, whatever it is. But generally it's completely detached from what happens in, in economic realities. But he did make the right point that the world isn't prepared for 7% rates. And I'm not sure if he really believes the Fed will hike rates to 7%. I don't know if that's what his real case is. Um, but he's saying that the world can't handle 7 He's right. At, at, at basically 4 and 3 quarters percent and on the Fed funds rate, we were having a bank crisis already. Don't forget, just in March, we were having to bail out regional banks. So, you know, rates have come up since then. And so far, we haven't had any more bank failures, but their collateral situation is not getting better. And remember, we had to set up this bank term funding program 
in order to provide loans to banks against their depressed collateral so that they can continue to operate. Remember, we have a fractional reserve banking system. So the higher that you hike rates, the greater the risk of a financial contagion. Plus, we have $4 trillion in refinancing for corporate debt coming up next year that has to be refinanced. Refinancing at a 5% Fed funds rate is one thing. Refinancing at a 7% Fed funds rate is a vastly different issue. Bankruptcies already on the rise. Those would basically blow out as we got to the economy next year. So, so yes, you know, if, if, the, if uh, you know, Jamie Dimon thinks we need to hike rates to 7% in order to quell this myth of stagflation, which we don't have, then you know, a depression will fix that because that's basically what you'd be talking about at that level. So, you know, not even mentioning, you know, housing prices, not mentioning consumer credit debt, not mentioning uh, corporate debt, well, other than the refinancing, but just the actual impact of higher, of that level of rates on the overall economy would be devastating. Danny? No, and I think you're, you're right. I mean, essentially what he's saying is that, you know, people in business aren't prepared for that 7% return, um, you know, interest rate because think about all the 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 issue with margins. Mm-hmm. You know, profit margins will decline. You, you, everything else is going to increase. Not, not and, decline. They would collapse. Yeah. yeah. And you you think about, you know, the big picture, like you follow the consumer to the small business. And consumers already look at the uh, sentiment survey just recently, you know, down a lot more than what was expected. As 108 to 105 was expectations. It, what did it hit? 103, I think. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's a self-fulfilling prophecy as well as we are seeing you know, credit balances are continuing to main, remain elevated over 2009 levels. Personal savings rates have been, uh, you know, significantly reduced from pre-pandemic levels and, you know, even way reduced from pandemic levels when everybody had a lot of cash on hand. So we are seeing that these higher interest rates and just the cost of living is becoming much more expensive, right? And so, you know, we talked to a lot of different people and, you know, we hear these numbers where inflation has declined from 9 to 3%. And everybody thinks, well, why is everything not getting cheaper? Well, we don't have deflation. We still have inflation. It's just not as much. So it's disinflation. I think what Jamie Dimon's concerned with is stagflation, where you see higher unemployment, higher rates, or higher, um, you know, cost of living still, and just a slower uh, economy. Right. But, you know, but prices are coming down and they're coming down a lot in the yeah. different places. Right. And, and, you know, it's, you know, we have these little pockets of, you know, price prices are going up. You know, everybody's focusing on oil prices right now. Oil prices only make up in total. And when we're talking about in, and, and we shouldn't say oil prices because that's a misnomer. It's energy prices, energy in total. So that's that's gasoline. It's heating oil. It's electricity. It is, you know, renewable energy, all those type of things now that we have. By the way, uh, we're going to have a solar eclipse coming up on October the 14th, my mother's birthday. It's the Ring of Fire. And for four minutes, we will have basically a blotted out sun other than just this little ring of fire around around the, the eclipse. And ERCOT is now saying that uh, we could have a power situation because we have so much dependency on, on renewable energy now in Texas that that blot out for four minutes because it'll drift across the state mm-hmm. of Texas. It will reduce the the, uh, the power generation during that period of time. So, hmm. And we already have a significant power issue here. <laughs> yes, it so, is. So does but, that tell me that, it, does that tell you that it's working or that? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe we have but, a bigger problem if we lose, you know, the sun for four minutes. Exactly. Uh, 
but the point is, is that out of all those different types of, of energy, right, they only make up 7% of the overall CPI calculation. So uh, again, you know, it's rent, it's, it's, you know, transportation, it's everything else within the index that, you know, and we're seeing those prices starting to come down. So, you know, you, your CPI is running at 3%. You know that's going to continue to decline lower, and the higher that price, just and don't forget the higher that rates go, and the slower that we begin to see the impact from the consumer, which we're already starting to see that Costco again, as I said as I said yesterday, they're starting to see softer sales. Um, that and and don't and don't forget when we have to start making student loan payments. Inflation is a function of supply and demand. So as monetary supply comes out of the market, why do we have inflation? We only have inflation for one reason: we shut down the economy which created a, 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 a dearth in supply because nobody was producing anything. And we gave a bunch of people money to spend. So we created all these excess savings. Those are about gone now. And then with this restart of student loan payments, that's going to put a further drag on consumption. So prices are going to come down over the next year. We're not, we do not have the economic environment. Everybody wants to refer back to the 70s. And say, oh, well, this is going to be the 70s where we had stagflation that one time. Remember in the 70s we had that stagflation one time? That's what everybody looks back to. The problem is, is this isn't the 70s. We don't have economic growth running at 8%. We don't have savings at 8%. We don't have, you know, the, the, the manufacturing base that we had back then, which had a big high multiplier effect. We have a very indebted, burdened economy that is dependent upon low rates for making ends meet. So once rates go to the level that it breaks the back of the consumer, inflation is going to come down very quickly. It's just, and, and you will go from disinflation, like Danny said, you know, going from 9% inflation to three is disinflation. When you get negative inflation, that is deflation. And that's still yet to come. We'll probably won't see that till next year. I think that's what most people are looking for too. They want to see that they're, you know, you go to the grocery store and your, your bill, if you spend a hundred dollars over the last year, it goes down to 90. Um, I think that's going to take a while, though. Yeah, well, and again, you know, th that's different. Um, you know, you weren't born in the 70s, <laughs> so you don't remember, you know, gasoline at 25 cents a gallon. You know, we had oil prices go to zero in March of 2020. Yep. Right? Our, now, I was born then. Right, you were born then. So we, we had, we had uh, and sorry, it's 2021. Uh, we had oil prices collapse and go to z literally yeah, negative zero. 35 bucks, negative I mean, 35 bucks. Yeah. You never saw gas prices go to 25 cents a gallon. Correct. Right. Which because negative $35 was lower than where it was back in the 70s. So the point is, is that prices will never when when consumers absorb a price at the grocery store. That price is never going to go down. And two things are never going to change for, for companies because they want to generate a profit margin. So you've had shrinkflation. That's been one thing, right? So get a bag of chips, a lot less chips in it, four less Oreos in a bag. I counted. Um, <laughs> you know, those will never go back. That will, that you, you're not going to get your four Oreos back when the economy settles down. It will, that, that will now be the new pack size, will be that, that new size. Prices will come down some, but they're never going to go back to where they were. So your hundred what used to be your ninety dollar grocery bill that's now a hundred, will might go down to ninety seven, but that's probably about the best you'll get because as consumers absorb a price, companies aren't going to lower that price back to where they were. They're going, hey, if you're used to paying, you know, four dollars a gallon of gas, you might get to three fifty, but you probably won't see two fifty again like we had under the Trump administration. Maybe we will, but probably not. Well, how do you get back to that? You don't. 
because companies get used to the look it's about profits right consumers absorb to a price right we used to we used to paying that price prices come down a little bit so we get excited right because it was four now it's 350 yep. we're all excited and so companies go okay well we'll just leave it at 350 because they're all happy at 350 nobody's complaining oh i think that's not true i think everybody's complaining they're complaining now but once you go from four to three fifty, they're happy again, or yeah. four to three bucks, whatever the number is. My point is, when prices come down, everybody the the pressure is relieved, right? Consumers are happier. Maybe they're not happy, but they're happier. <laughs> and the companies say, okay, we'll hold the price there, and that's why prices never go back down to where they were previously. Well, it's it's a lot more affordable at that point if you go from yeah. four to three. But you got to think about the you know. So I think we focus just on energy in general, but right. what does everything rely on? Energy, the price of getting things from point A to point B, mm -hmm. impacts the price of everything else that we do. Correct. And so that's not necessarily extrapolated from that number. That's correct. You know, so that's, it's a little bit of a misconception in some ways, right? Yeah, it is. And look, it's very complicated. Yeah. Right. But the point is, is that high interest rates are going to drag on consumption. And when you have a slow, a slowdown in demand, prices come down. Yep. So... The Fed's going to get their wish of lower inflation. They just may not like the rate of inflation they actually get. It may be a lot lower than they expect. <laughs> or the uh, quote-unquote soft landing. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of that, we'll talk about that when we come back from break. New poll out this morning. A survey of the world's leading economists and what they say about the potential for a recession coming up next year. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So this morning, if you want a quick primer on why this isn't the 70s and stagflation isn't likely, there's an article on our website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com, called That 70s Show uh, that we published on Friday, which actually looks at the 1970s and why that period of time was very different than we have today and why the outcomes today um, are not going to be the same. And again, you know, we as, as, as individuals, we get wrapped up in headlines and we get wrapped up into the immediacy of data without looking at the facts that drove whatever's occurring at the short time. We assume that if stocks are going up, that they're just going to go up forever. They're never going to come down. And when stocks start coming down again, like they have over the last you know, month or so, which we discussed right back in June and July, we said, hey, we're due for a three to five to a 10 percent correction. Here we are. We're having a three to five to ten percent correction. Now everybody's going, oh my gosh, the world's ending, and you know we're going to zero again. Stocks are never going to go up. Um, so again, you got to keep, you know, a little bit of factual basis and and what you're looking at, and understand the causes of why you have certain things, and why if that cause is a temporary cause, then it's not sustainable. And once that input whatever it was that caused the current situation goes away the economy is going to return to where it was previously and that's just a, a function of basic economics so 
you've got to stop getting wrapped up in these headlines and focus on the drivers long term of what drives economic growth, what drives inflation, what drives interest rates long term, what drives bond prices, you know, all those type of things you have to stock prices, earnings, um, you have to focus on those drivers that that drive those ultimate outcomes and figure out are they permanent you know have you entered a new paradigm or are they temporary and if they're temporary then you have to go back and say okay if these are temporary when these go away where do we return to anyway uh the reason i bring that up is is that there was a survey out by bank of america with economists analysts etc and the expectations for a recession coming next year Currently, uh, now remember last year, that same survey predicted that 70% of those same people were expecting a recession in 2023. That same survey now has 74% predicting a no recession soft landing in 2024 and only about 20% predicting a recession at all. So, um, you know, we've now got a complete inversion of these analysts now going, oh, we're, we're going to be great. There's going to be soft landing, um, which the soft landing narrative is very interesting because that suggests that you have higher interest rates with no recession. Here's the interesting point about this, and this is an article we have coming out on Friday. There's only one point in history where the Fed was hiking interest rates and we did not have a recession, and that was in 1995. Every other time in history that the Fed has hiked interest rates, we have either had a crisis event, a recession, or both. And most of the time it was both. What was the difference between 1995 and today? In 1995, the yield curve was not inverted. The yield curve inverted in 1998, and you had a recession in 2000. Today, you have one of the deepest inversions of the yield curve on record. And yes, we haven't had a recession yet, but there's never been a case where you had an inverted yield curve as the Fed was hiking rates and you didn't have a recession or a crisis event or both. So just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it won't. It's just a function of when those higher interest rates, that lag effect catches up overall with consumers. But again, now because we haven't had a recession last year, as everybody predicted. Now everybody just assumes that, oh, well, this time is different because we didn't have a recession. That's not the way economic data works. When you get these indicators that suggest you're going to have an event, it takes time. Again, there's generally a 9- to 12-month lag between the Fed's last rate hike and the recession. So if the Fed is done hiking rates as of the last meeting, then having a recession between the second and third and fourth quarter of next year is the probable window for that recession. But again, since nobody expects one now, that's actually a good thing that suggests that we can actually have, have a recession because as Bob Farrell once said, when all analysts agree, something else tends to happen and that always tends to be the case more often than not. So what do you think, Danny? I think that the Fed's going to need some Taylor Swift index here. You see what, <laughs> see all the stuff that's going on with Travis Kelsey? Yeah, yeah. We talked yeah. about that yesterday. Yeah. So that Apparently they've been dating for a while, so we'll see. Well, I'm not one to catch up on pop culture very much, but uh, you know when uh, when these couples get together and they they glom their names together, yeah. mm -hmm. so this couple will be known as Trailer. 
Okay. How'd you get that? Taylor, Travis, trailer. trailer. It's kind okay. of trashy, but it works. Yeah. You thought about this one for a while, huh? He, he worked on that one all, all night long. <laughs> all night long. He was sitting up. I was waiting for Danny to bring it up. I just, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, uh, seven deadly sins of year-end financial planning. Danny, we're about to get to that quarter of the year. Yeah, it is. And I think this is when a lot of people do make some mistakes. I mean, thinking about we're getting into the fourth quarter, it's time to start wrapping things up and kind of get a good understanding as far as things you should be doing. Make sure you're not leaving any benefits on the table or, um, you know, anything unfunded. And so, you know, some of the things that we talk about, and I came across an article on this, and this is the time of year you're going to see a lot of this stuff. Some good, some bad, um, some indifferent. But this one kind of caught me by surprise. So, um, the number one thing they had is that people will sandbag returns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take profits, sit on the sideline, wait till 2023 or 24, excuse me, um, and then jump back in at the beginning of the year, which is interesting because historically the fourth quarter is one of the better quarters that we see. Um, now, granted, this has been an interesting year. Uh, market breadth has not been that great. You know, a handful of companies driving the markets up. So if you were in those companies specifically and had a lot of return, I could see taking some chips off the table, maybe you find something different. But I've never heard or had a client come to me and be like, let's sandbag some returns this year. I mean, maybe risk risk management, yes. Yeah. But not, let's just say, hey, we'll wait and then we'll get those returns at the beginning of the year. So that doesn't make a ton of sense. But, you know, one thing that, you know, I think people, and it's beginning to come, it's getting a little more difficult to do, excuse me, um, is miss RMDs. But yet people still do it. So these are your required minimum distributions that you have to take before December 31st. So if you have an IRA, a 401k, any type of qualified retirement account outside of a Roth, you have to take these required minimum distributions. And this is stuff that I see people miss. The penalty for missing something like this is tremendous. You know, it's 50%. And there's been a lot, especially with spousal or like inherited IRAs, non-spousal IRAs that you've inherited there's been a lot of, you know, things up in the air, so to speak. And so essentially, you know, what we've been waiting on is verbiage from the IRS essentially saying, do you have to take an RMD from that each year, required minimum distribution, or do you have to do it over a 10-year period? Secure Act 2.0 said now you have to take that over a 10-year period, but they did not clarify. And so once again, the IRS kicked the can down the road and they said, listen, don't have to do it this year. So keep that in mind. If you have a Inherited IRA that is a non-spousal, you cannot take it on as your own. Um, you do have to take it out within a 10-year time frame. They may change that and come back next year and say, well, you need to take a little bit each year. But for the moment, you don't have to. So, uh, But if you have a regular retirement account, make sure you're taking those required minimum distributions. Now, other thing is, is that gift tax exclusion. So you have, you have to pay taxes on anything above and beyond 17000 for the year. Uh, but a lot of people will try to, um, you know, gift that each and every year, but sometimes they forget. So don't forget, if you are gifting, if you are in the position where you can do so, I know everybody out there is not, $17,000 is a lot of money, but you can also elect to do uh, to split that. So if you're married, you and your spouse could give one child $34,000 uh, without worrying about, you know, the uh, the gift tax. So Keep that in mind, something that most people need, probably won't be able to do, but look at that if you can. Um, and then tax loss selling, you know, do some tax loss harvesting. You know, great time of year for it. 
Um, if you have some positions that have um, increased substantially, you have some that maybe have declined, go ahead and sell, sell some of those losers to offset that. Make sure you keep in mind the wash rule. You do have to stay out of that for 30 days if you want to come back to it or find another investment that you like. Uh, but just do not do a like-kind investment there. Um, and I think that's one thing that a lot of people have, they struggle with. Because you could go from one ETF to the other, and if they're identical, that could be a wash sell. Um, whereas if you go from one that, you know, take a bond fund that's very short in duration, you go to a longer duration bond fund to lock in higher yields, that would be uh, something you could do. Just you cannot be in identical investments. And Lance, I know you hear about that quite a bit. Yep. Um, and then, you know, I think, I think the other thing is, I think that we don't anticipate year-end bonuses or uh, maybe even deferred income. So this is the time of year we start looking at Roth conversions and distribution planning. And so really big for making sure that we have a very good understanding on income. And you've seen people take um, maybe distributions without accounting for that. And I think that's where people get in trouble, right? You take too much, you get a higher tax bracket. You could, if you are 63 and over, you could be subject to Medicare premium surcharges um, because of distributions or the additional income you did not account for. So make sure you account for all income. Take an inventory of that prior to doing a conversion. I have seen people do it, and then they come back and say, oh, shoot, we forgot about this. And guess what? Can't recharacterize anymore. So you're kind of stuck. Once you do it, a conversion... You can't go back and undo it. So make sure you account for all income that you may have for the year, which is why we like to do that typically in the fourth quarter. There you go. All right. You're ready to wrap up the show when we come back from the break? Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show. Get ready to wrap things up. Uh, so how about a portfolio that will yield you 7% returns? I thought this was interesting. Jeff Gunlack uh, did an interview with Think Advisor and... Of course, Jeffrey Gunlax, he's considered the he took over the the crown of the Bond King from Bill Gross a few years back. And Bill Gross does not like that. Yeah, he did not like that at all. Um, he took his blanket and went home. Uh, no, did you see what he said the other day? Like, they were at some big conference I, together. No. And um, basically, he said, you know, I managed, you know, so many trillions of dollars. You know, I can't remember. He, he, he equated it to a small city. Versus him managing the universe, essentially. Oh, gotcha. It was well. Yeah. It, he did manage. I got you know Bill Gross for a long time did manage tons of money, and he was the bond king for a long time. Oh yeah. And then you know few wrong calls though. Get well, you. It wasn't even that. I don't think it was that he became such a. It was so large. He was like a market maker, and so that's why he went to Janice. Yeah. To try to get to back to something well, smaller. Well, well, that, him and, and there was him and the bu- fallout between him and yeah. There was a big fallout between him Muhammad. And, yeah, well, that and the whole board, and there were some other allegations and stuff. So anyway, well, I mean, you gotta you get to that point. <laughs> what was he doing? Didn't he get sued for just blaring music at his neighbor's house? Yeah, it was just it was, it was all, he just he kind of went. It's just, it always happens with these rich people, right? They just kind of go a wall for some reason. I don't know what happens. Um, 
Anyway, Jeffrey Gunlack, Double Line Capital founder, he's talking about a, he says, the allegation he recommended could yield about 7%. Now, uh, Danny and I don't necessarily agree with this allocation that we're about to give you. So, And, and the, the only reasons are is because you as an individual, I would be very careful uh, with some of this recommendation because you have a you you do not have the access to the deals that Jeff Gunlike has through his business. And as we've talked about before on the show, when somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, I've got this really great real real invest or, you know real estate investment deal, whatever it is," the first question you should ask yourself is, "Well, why are you coming to me?" Why am I so lucky? Any, any deal, if it's a private investment deal, if somebody comes to you with a private investment, ask yourself, why am I so lucky? Because if it's a good deal, if it's a really good deal, Jeff Gunlack, as an example, has billions of dollars at his disposal and he will buy the deal, right? If it's a good deal. If there's a good bond offering, he will buy a very large chunk of that bond offering. So by the time you see the bonds, you know, the time you log into your Fidelity account or your Schwab account to look at the bonds that are there to buy, those are the remnants that are left over that nobody wanted because all the good bonds have already been bought by the institutions. And it's just like us, when, when we go to buy bonds, we buy bonds in very large blocks. So we have access to the institutional desk to buy blocks of bonds and we distribute those to our clients what's left over is the stuff that nobody else wanted right they're they're not the the best bonds to buy so again just always kind of keep that back in the back of your mind that you know when you're dealing against an institution the institution's always going to win because they have access and they have capital that you don't um so just again so when we go through this allocation We'll kind of make some some disclaimers about this, but I did think the allocation was interesting. Well, and that could be an argument why you would hire. I mean, we're not big proponents of buying mutual funds or active managed funds just because the cost is expensive. As a professional right. money manager, no sense in buying something that's going to have uh, an additional cost associated with that. Now, there may be arguments in times that we can, especially in niche mm-hmm. se- sectors, where you have somebody with boots on the ground, and like you mentioned, somebody who you know has access to these deals quicker than others. Right, that can be beneficial, but. For the most part, I mean, I think you can get out there and a lot of people, you can access it through ETFs. You can access it through um, individual bonds. Somebody mentioned that on the chat on YouTube earlier at The Real Investment Show. If you're not a subscriber, go check it out. But yeah, I think it's um, you know it, it's interesting because you can't go buy some of the same things in other areas, right? But also, what is he, what is he pushing? Well, and again, and particularly what I'm talking about, you're right. The ETFs, mutual funds, you know, if you want to buy something, you know, go buy a mutual fund, right? Um, it's the private deals I want you to be careful of, you know, these alternative investments. And again, those are the, the, whenever some guy comes to you with a private placement that's not publicly traded, that you don't have lots of liquidity and vision, vision into, be very, very careful. Ask yourself the question, why are you coming to me, right? Why isn't, why isn't this already sold to BlackRock, <laughs> right? BlackRock buys everything. So yeah, especially if it's a really big deal. I mean, smaller deals are easier to find, but yeah. once you get something that's way up there, yeah. that is, I think, when you you have to ask that question. And even then, um, just be know. careful. The point is not not every deal is bad. Just be careful is my whole point. Anyway, uh, so the allocation he's talking about: uh, how much should investors have? Here, I'll just read you his quote from the article. Investors should be getting a much, much more conservative. Uh, sorry, let me. Start that over because I can't read this morning. Investors should be getting much more conservative, and I continue to favor a relatively balanced portfolio. When I say that, 
I don't mean 60-40, um, referring to the additional 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. I mean only 25 to 30% in equities and the same quantity or slightly more of bonds. Um, so, well, okay, so if I have 30% equities and 30% bonds, where's the rest of the money? And so he's talking about this uh, allocation of the kind of this 25, 25, 25, 25. So specifically, Gunlack is suggesting a 25% allocation to a 10-year or longer treasury bond, which he said could provide portfolio balance uh, over, the, over the coming years. Uh, because as the economy slows, you have a recession, bond prices go up, yields come down. So you have total return that provides ballast to a portfolio. Um, investors could reach 30% gains or higher on the 30-year bond and about half of that on 10-year bonds yet. So again, this is what we're talking about, right? So interest rates come down, bond prices go up. So there's your gain on the bond side. He also recommends 25% in cash-ish type holdings. By the way, this is pretty much what he's talking about is a we have a portfolio model we run called the permanent portfolio and it's based on the permanent portfolio theory, which is a a a basically a four quadrant portfolio of different asset classes that are historically non-correlated. So again, this is really what he's going through is this 25 25 25 25 portfolio which is basically the permanent portfolio uh, idea. Uh, recommends 25% in cash-ish type holdings, other high-quality fixed-income investments, such as low a low-duration bond fund. So in other words, uh, another 25% in bonds that have a much shorter duration, generally between uh, you know, one to three months to you know, three to five years, somewhere in there. So uh, kind of barbelled approach. So basically half the portfolio is fixed income, 25% is, is equities, those would be dividend yielding equities, of course. And then I did think this was interesting because he was talking about those cash-ish type holdings. Mm -hmm. He said a, a, a low duration bond fund or a commercial real estate ETF. And of course, he's talking about the double line commercial real estate ETF um, and double or triple B fixed income, which you know have some bankruptcy risk to them, but they have a much higher yield. So that would that 30 percent would have risk that would be offset by the 10-year treasury holding uh, in your portfolio, but provide a higher yield in your treasury. That's where you're going to get your 7 8 9% type returns. Yeah, and I think he's looking at low duration, so something that's shorter in, in mm -hmm. nature, yeah. um, so you don't have as much volatility associated with it. But that would be where you have to make sure it's high credit quality versus you know some of these lower credit quality or even junk, which nobody calls it junk anymore. But I think the people are going to get lured towards that because of the yield. And that's where we have to be cautious because if you know if what he's saying is true and we're going to get into some type of recessionary pressure or period at, at some point in the future, those are likely going to continue to have some issues. Right. And, and not only that, you got to think about the credit quality within commercial real estate. Um, considering where everything is right now, I mean, you know, I don't think we're back from the pandemic. We have hybrid for the most part for right. many people, but there's still a lot of people working from home. There's still a lot of vacancies, occupancy issues within commercial real estate. Um, and I don't know that's going away quickly. Right. You know, one area, too, is is mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, you know, if you've got, um, you know, higher interest rates on mortgages right now, so you could buy a, a basket of mortgages that have a higher interest rate. You know, the problem that you've got to be careful of, though, is potential defaults. If we do actually get into a housing crisis situation at some point, 
and you start having a lot of defaults. This was the 2008 financial crisis. Now, again, I'm not saying we're going to have a 2008 financial crisis, but one of the impacts of the financial crisis was all these mortgage-backed securities. They were all the the whole model was based upon the fact that the housing market never crashes and and people will always pay their mortgages and that wasn't the case and that's what led to the the crisis in 2008 so again i think you could have a small allocation to very high quality mortgage backed securities in your portfolio that could generate some additional higher rates of return and then as rates come down those prices will go up and they get refinanced and get paid off very quickly. So I think there's probably going to be a, an opportunity in, in mortgage-backed securities in the coming months and something that, that Mike and I will probably be looking at as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be, with the current environment, a ton of opportunities ahead. I think people are very yeah. concerned with where we've been and where we may be going. I mean, especially talking about all the things you mentioned earlier in the show. Yeah. You know, Inverted yield curve, leading economic index has been negative, what, 17 months in a row? Um, you're beginning to see consumer confidence wane, um, especially these higher rates, you know, talk about what broke it back in March. I mean, what pops up next? Yeah. Well, and again, it's very important that everybody remembers that the yield curve is inverted right now. That is not your recessionary signal. Your recessionary signal and the time to go all in, basically, you know, lock, stock, and barrel into buying bonds is when the yield curve uninverts. So as soon as that yield curve be actually begins its uninversion process, and, and that's kind of where you really want to lay in this bet on a recession. And in fact, this is Gunlack's closing quote is that the yield curve, when it starts to de-invert, is a very good real-time recession indicator. And that was his last statement in the interview. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Hey, if you have not gone to sign up for our progression planning, we'll be talking a little about estate planning conversations you need to have within your home with family and friends. Uh, please go do so. Go to realinvestmentadvice.com. You can sign up right there. It'll be this Saturday, 8 a.m. Central Time. So thank you guys for joining and hope to see you guys Saturday. And be sure, and while you're on the website right now, be sure and subscribe to this channel. Uh, click the little bell icon and uh, recommend it to your friends. We appreciate some more viewers. Anyway, have a great day. See you back here tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz to talk all about the Fed's next moves. See you tomorrow.